You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One... Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Small thing, Edwina Grovner. In this episode, I talk with Mary Bosworth, Director of the Centre for Criminology at Oxford University, about her research on immigration detention centres and what really happens to people when they're being removed from our country and some of the challenges associated with this process. My name's Mary Bosworth and I'm Professor of Criminology at the University of Oxford, where I'm also the Director of the Centre for Criminology and Director of the International Research Network Border Criminologies. And Mary, today we're going to be talking about, well, a few different things, but really we want to concentrate on your work in detention, immigration removal centres, and then actually the really fascinating bit around transportation and what happens to people, how they get from A to B, and when they are being removed from the country, how that actually happens. So can you give me a bit of an overview of your recent work that you're currently uh, progressing at the moment? Sure. So I've been doing research inside immigration removal centres in the United Kingdom since 2009, and that's involved all sorts of different projects, initially focusing on the detainee experience of what it's like to be incarcerated in a removal centre. And then more recently in the last few years, I've turned to looking at the role of the staff and, and their experiences. And then last year in 2019, I began a new project which looked at the other end of the system, really. So having previously focused on on people's experiences of incarceration, I have turned now to trying to understand the processes involved in moving people around the system. um, So from removal centre to removal centre and also removing people from the country altogether. So the deportation process. And in that work, unlike some of the other research that that has happened, I've again, I'm not so much focusing on the detainee experience because it seemed a little bit difficult <laughs> to interview people while they're being deported. Yeah. I'm I'm focusing much more on the staffing experience. There are a number of reasons for that, but one is that I think that there's a lot of questions about the work that some staff do, and uh, I think it's quite important for us to understand their role and and how they make sense of their job and things like that. Okay. And then if we just roll back a bit, just to paint a picture, because I think it's important for listeners to understand that, yes, we have a network of prisons in this country, but the immigration removal centres aren't prisons. So that's why you call them detainees. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. You know, they're that's not right. prisoners because they're not held under criminal law. 
they're held under different law. Can you sort of help me find the right words? It's a good question. And it's worth saying that before I did work on immigration removal centres, I actually used to be a prisons researcher. So, so I mean, in, in 2008, um, I thought to myself rather naively, oh, I think there are these institutions that look a bit like prisons. They, you know, they're behind uh, barbed wire fences and people wear uniforms in them. And, and I know that there are people inside them who are there for some time. I'm just going to to sort of ask permission to go in and, and do some research in the same way that, that academics do research inside prisons all the time. And what I didn't realise in 2008 was that actually only one other person had ever been given permission to go inside a detention centre to do research and that these were really um, under-researched institutions altogether. And not only that, they are, of course, as you just said before, they're not prisons. And so some of the assumptions I sort of entered in with about carceral spaces and the experience of incarceration, I found when I got into them, didn't didn't always work so well. But the, the process of getting access was actually quite interesting because it took it took a year to to be given permission from the Home Office. And that year was largely spent being kind of introduced to to various people within the structure by people from the prison service, because people in the prison service are both used to prisons researchers and I think have realised that there's a lot of benefit in having a prison researcher. And so they would introduce me to, to you know, a, a governor of a, of a, a centre manager, they're called, of an immigration removal centre, who would then introduce me to somebody else and somebody else. I eventually got to the to the relevant person in the Home Office. Okay, um, so they're not prisons, but I understand they are inspected by the prison inspectorate. Is that correct? That's correct. So immigration removal centres are not prisons. They are places of uh, detention um, which fall under the Immigration Act, but they are certainly modelled on prisons. And you see that both in the architecture, where some of them are some of them are former prisons, um, some of them are modern institutions, so built in the 21st century, but built all built according to Category B prison security. Which is quite high. Yeah, which is very high. And, uh, you know, given that nobody in them is serving a criminal sentence, that's, that's something which is quite important to, to wonder why there was thought to be a need to build them with security quite so high. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, as you said, they're inspected by the prison inspectorate. They also have um, resident... IMB. Independent Monitoring Board. Independent Monitoring Board, just like a prison. Um, And all of the centre managers are former prison service employees. Okay, there's a heavy prison DNA running through (laughs) running through the makeup of it. And we have about roughly, what, 130 prisons in this country. And how many immigration removal centres do we have? And if you could tell us the split between male and female. So at the moment, in 2020, we have seven IRCs. And just a few years ago, there were double that. And the overall population, I mean, at the moment is very, very low. So at the moment, I mean, I think it's as low as 350. It's very low. Not so long ago, it was 4,000, which is still low. It's still, that's really, you know, analogous to to just the women's estate, I guess, and the prison service. But it's, um, it, you can see there's been a significant decline and I can I can talk about that. But the, the split is out of the seven, six of those places are for men and one is for women. And children? 
No. Um, in 2010, under the coalition government, Britain ended child detention. So there are officially no children. The only two exceptions to that would be there is what's called a pre-departure facility, which right. is um, next to Gatwick. It's part of, of, an, of an IRC there called Tinsley House. Family groups can be held there, but only very, very briefly. So basically for about 72 hours or with ministerial approval to a week. And then what there is more commonly is that there are young people who are brought in because they're initially considered to be adults. And then once they are detained, they can point out that actually they are children. And so they're, you know, 17-year-olds. Um, and that would mainly be young men who who are what are called age-disputed minors, but are basically boys who are mistakenly brought in uh, to detention. And once it's established that they're children, then they are immediately meant to be removed and placed into the care of the local authority. Okay, so if a man or a woman had a two-year-old or a child younger than that, say, does the child get removed into care? Yes. So, I mean, this is this is part of the system which I think is very murky and there hasn't been enough research on bail for immigration detainees did a did a little project a few years ago but there's not been not much done since then um and i've spoken to quite a few people in detention women and men who've told me that their children have been placed in care they also told me that they would be reunited at the airport upon being deported with their children I have not witnessed that, but I think that there is a use of the care system if the state really wants to detain the parent. Increasingly, that should not be happening, but but we just don't really have any sense of the figures. Yeah, so I guess that individual is being detained before being removed, and then the idea is that when they're removed and flown back to their country, that the child should go with them, because I guess what you don't want is the child being left in care in England when actually they can go with a parent. Yes, exactly. And so that is how the system is designed. I mean, the problem, there there are many problems with that design. One is that actually less than half of the population of people in detention are removed. So although they're called immigration removal centres, you know, it's very hard to remove somebody for all sorts of reasons. So actually as a sort of policy tool for removal, they're pretty ineffective in the same way you could argue that prisons are fairly ineffective at reducing crime or anything like that. So it's, it's perhaps not surprising. Um, and then the other, the other issue about um, removing a child is that, um, of course, if the child has British citizenship, then that becomes quite difficult for the state to do as well. So there's all sorts of barriers to actually getting rid of families if that's what the state wants to do, which raises all sorts of questions about why they why they put energy into, into even trying to do so. Okay. And do we have any idea or do you have any idea of the percentage of children in care that might be caught up in this situation that we're talking about? No, I, I don't, unfortunately. And I don't think those figures are available. But there is another trail, which, you know, it'd be great if somebody went down, which is that, as I understand it, mother and baby units in prisons have a very high proportion of foreign national women in them. So there is something there going on with the intersection about citizenship and care and custody, um, but it hasn't, it hasn't been researched. Okay, maybe this will spark one of our listeners to go down that route. And then your average duration in an IRC would be about what or is the one? So it's another one of the uh, very unusual aspects about immigration removal centres is that there's no statutory upper time limit to how long somebody can be detained. Okay. 
So um, they're only me- people are only meant to be detained, largely meant to be detained pursuant to deportation. So if deportation really isn't possible, then they ought to be released. And currently, the majority of people are, in fact, released or removed within 28 days. But every removal centre has somebody who's been there for considerably longer um, and inspectorate reports do quite often find people who've been who've been detained, you know, for multiple years. And in my own research, I mean, one of the, one of the characteristics that you see very frequently when you go into a detention centre is you see people have arrived. They they are initially quite buoyant. They think this is just a sort of administrative matter that they'll that they'll be able to sort out because they'll you know they'll they'll persuade somebody that that they should be allowed to stay. And then they meet people in the detention centre who've been there for, you know, three months, four months, five months, one year, two years. And then you start to see people's confidence um, and also their mental health really deteriorate. And the people who stay the longest in detention, by and large, are people with criminal records. And so ex-prisoners, mainly because they're quite hard to deport, because they are more likely to have either established family ties in the UK or to be from countries where there are human rights barriers to deportation. Okay. And then I think it's worth just concentrating for a moment or two on why people might be removed from a country. And when I was doing my homework, I noticed that, so it's foreign nationals, asylum seekers and ex-offenders. And I think it said in 2017 that equated to roughly 43,000 removals in that year. And is that an average annual number or or is it just completely pie in the sky depending on legislation and depending on all sorts of different political policy legislative factors? Yeah, so it's one, it is one of the aspects about this whole field of research that it's very, very fluid and it's also very subject to political sort of views and, and changes. And, and, yeah, <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the things that's happened in the United Kingdom is the Windrush sort of scandal, which showed that a bunch of people who'd come over who actually had the right to stay in the United Kingdom were, were, were British citizens, were being detained and deported. And that, the, the sort of legal and political outcome of that, of that scandal is still really shaping what's happening. And so actually numbers of deportations have gone down um, and the, the, the populations who are being deported has changed. So whereas in the past... I would have said to you, oh, well, you know, the the most common, the five most common populations in detention and also in deportation are from former British colonies, you know, countries like Jamaica, Nigeria, India, Bangladesh, places like that. Actually, in the last couple of years, it, these populations who are mainly in detention and who are being deported have predominantly started to be from Eastern European countries, some within the EU um, and some not within the EU. So, you know, Romania, Poland, um, Lithuania, and then, you know, bits of the former Soviet Union. So it, it changes a lot. Yeah. Do you expect Brexit to have a big impact on this area? Well, I don't really see how it can't, because I think one of the sort of determining factors about about whether you end up in detention as a, as a foreign national relates to the capacity of, 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 of the British state to deport you and also the grounds for which they're trying to get rid of you. And so as, as you said before, you know, the population in detention is a, is a real mix. And so it's made up of people who've overstayed visas, people who've kind of violated the terms of their visas. So perhaps they've come in as a student and then they've ended up working. People who have a criminal record. And so they've been given a deportation as, as a consequence of that. 
and then people who've applied for asylum and have failed in that claim. And so they're being returned because they've been found to have no well-grounded fear of persecution. And so they're, they're quite different kinds of populations. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between them, but they, they all have different, the people in them will have different biographies and different trajectories and different reasons for coming to the United Kingdom. And European citizens, EU citizens previously were not really in any of those groups unless they had a criminal conviction. And even if they had a criminal conviction under the freedom of movement agreements, they sort of had to have had a more serious criminal conviction than someone from outside of the EU to be subject to mandatory deportation. So after Brexit, basically what will happen, I presume, is that EU citizens will become treated like non-EU citizens, and that will lower the criminal threshold for mandatory deportation at the very least. And I suppose EU citizens have visas to work, and so therefore they might overstay them or, or do something, you know, violate the terms of them. So I can't see how we won't see a growth in EU citizens falling into the immigration control system and therefore, you know, coming into detention centres and, 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 and eventually being removed and deported. Okay. And so if we sort of turn to maybe an example of a man or a woman, either their visa has expired or their asylum claim has failed, and they're trying to go about their everyday life, but sort of thinking, oh God, it's only a matter of time before maybe someone catches up with me. Is it the traditional police that will come knocking at their door? And then could you maybe give an example of what happens next, step by step? Yes. So, <laughs> generally speaking, of course. <laughs> well, it's, it. I mean, again, like one of the things that that I think it's it, it took me a long time to get my head around in this field is that there's so much variation in how in in how people might end up in a in a detention centre, and so it's hard to come up with a kind of story that encapsulates the norm because actually there's all yeah. of these different pathways. And so even just the question that you just asked, like, is it the police who might be the people who kind of are the gatekeeper and who, who catch you somehow without a visa or is it somebody else? Well, it, it, it depends, right? So I've met quite a few people in detention who've ended up there because they were stopped by a police officer for a traffic reason. And so, you know, the classic okay. example, one of their lights on the back of their car wasn't working. And so the police stopped them to give them a fine. And what has happened in the United Kingdom is that there's been a kind of growing intersection between different parts of the criminal justice system and the immigration system. So these days, what can happen now when a police officer stops you for any reason at all, is they can, but they don't have to, but they can check your citizenship status and your immigration status. And so this is where research has shown, and research by my colleague Alpa Palmer, has shown that we, we start to see the kind of intersection with questions about race. Okay, yes, I was going to ask <laughs> about that. Because police are more likely to ask somebody uh, of colour for their immigration papers than they might be to ask, you know, me. Even I mean, I am a British citizen, but I haven't always been... So a police officer can ask for people's papers and what and it's not just papers they can actually run them through they have access to the immigration database and that is one of the pathways into detention so you might not be they they might not be looking for you but you might be stopped for some other reason and then they check and then they find that actually you know you've overstayed your visa or you're not in the system at all and at that point they can take you to the police station and they can hold you for a certain amount of time and then 
the immigration authorities are, are informed and then you're taken by the private company that I'm studying at the moment, you're taken from a, a police station to a detention centre. So that's one of the pathways. Okay, so I guess, you know, comparing that to criminal justice system, you might go police custody suite, magistrate's court or crown court, whereas it's you're sort of bypassing that bit because it's not a criminal thing. It's um, you're taken from the police custody suite to the immigration removal centre. Exactly. So basically, nobody really gets anywhere near a court unless they apply for bail. Okay. And they can apply for bail from an immigration removal centre. And there's a process for that. But is that quite rare? Again, the numbers are very unclear. I think it's becoming more common and the Immigration Act of 2016 brought in a system where people were meant to be automatically considered for bail after four months of detention, I believe. Okay. But but the, but again, it's one of the aspects is that it's it's a you know it's a form of custody. It's a deprivation of liberty, but there doesn't have to be any court oversight. So if the individual doesn't know that they can apply for bail, or if they are deported before the sort of automatic check comes up, then actually they can have their liberty taken away and be put on an aeroplane and forced to leave the country without any court scrutinising it just on the say-so of a civil servant who's signed a, a custody order and a deportation order. Okay. Between the police custody suite and going to the IRC, would they have time to sort out any um, sort of issues they might have with children and caring responsibilities, whether they were a man or a woman, or is it, that's it, you're just gone? No, I mean, they wouldn't, there's no time built into the system. Those questions should be asked of them when they are brought into custody. And there were two very important reviews made of the treatment of vulnerable people in detention by Stephen Shaw in 2016 and 2018, which have inspired the government to bring in new policies around trying to identify people who are at risk in detention. Again, I could talk you through what happens when somebody comes to a detention centre. They're brought in a custodial van, like they would be to a prison. It goes through the the gatehouse, it sits in the initial courtyard, and then they are taken out of the van and they're brought into a reception area. And in the reception area, all of their possessions are searched and they're allowed to take a certain amount with them onto the landing, and then the rest is is held for them in the gatehouse, basically. And in the admissions process, they're asked all sorts of questions um, which should elicit things like, do you have children and is somebody looking after them? They are meant to be seen by a nurse within 24 hours of arrival, and then they are usually placed onto an induction unit within an IRC. In the induction unit, they will be given information about what to expect from their time in detention. And like in a prison, many detention centres use other detainees to help run the induction process. So there's a sort of buddy system. They have to run this often in multiple languages, which is also kind of difficult. Um, so there's, you know, course, there'll, there'll be yeah. videos. Some some places have videos. There's not there's not much consistency. So some places have videos. Some places have it in paper. Some places just walk people around and talk slowly and <laughs> gesticulate yeah. wildly. Right. Um, and then once you've been on, you know, they're not held on the induction unit for terribly long. I mean, mainly up to a week. And on an induction unit, when a, when a detention centre is at full capacity, which they're not at the moment and they haven't been for a while, on an induction unit, you're one person to a room, but then you're taken to to a housing unit. And housing units are, are not one person to a room. Housing units um, at the Category B ones are two 
two, at least two people to a room. Um, and then in some of the older establishments, they actually have dormitories. So there would have been, you know, 10, 10 people to a room. Single sex. All single sex. So all rooms are single sex. So, I mean, at, at each point... In theory, there are these checks and balances where people should be given information about, you know, legal legal opportunities or, you know, they're given phone numbers of lawyers, things like that. But it's very difficult because there are significant language barriers. And also, despite the fact you might think that people who are living in the community with uncertain immigration status would know about detention, and maybe people do, but it's often quite unexpected when somebody is detained and they don't necessarily know what they're meant to be doing. So, the, you know, lots of research has shown that there's a lot of ignorance around legal remedies and that there's people just don't know what to do when they, when they are detained. And I think, you know, if you imagine yourself in a foreign country where you're not in great command of the, of the language and you're suddenly locked up in a place that looks like prison with people who are wearing uniforms and carrying keys and shutting metal doors behind you. I mean, it, it, it would be quite a frightening process. Absolutely. So then that individual spends X amount of time in the immigration removal centre. And then if we jump to the point where that individual is told, right, you know, it's time to go to the airport. Could you talk us through that section? Yes. So this is also part of the system which is um, a little bit in flux. It used to be the case that the Home Office could really just sort of spring it on somebody and, and say, OK, we're going now. Um, that is no longer the case. So, so detainees have to be given advance notification. And the advance notification isn't always entirely specific. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes they're told, OK, you're going you know, on Thursday at 10 a.m. on a British Airways flight and we're going to come get you. Sometimes they're told you're going to go at some point within the next week. The process of deportation, it, it depends. It depends very much on, on a series of things. So deportations almost always fail the first time. So there's a kind of way in which they have a system where they can say to somebody, do you want to go? And if the person says no, that's counted as an attempt to get rid of them and that's failed. And so then the next time when they when they are going to take the person, they don't give them the choice. And so they come with um, detainee escort officers who are empowered to use control and restraint. Okay, and that's run by a private company called Mighty, isn't it? That's currently run by Mighty, yes. The contract changes sort of periodically okay. and they, they currently have it. So the Mighty officers, they're also called, slightly confusingly, I think, detainee custody officers, even though they are the deportation agents. <laughs> but so their their role is essentially to get somebody out of the country onto a plane normally. And this is part of the process that I've been observing recently. And I've seen a couple of different versions. One uh, was a charter flight. So sometimes the government hires a whole aeroplane to get rid of a group of people and then I've also observed a few what are called scheduled flights. So they put an individual onto a plane along with other people who are flying for, for tourism or business or what have you. And they're quite different experiences. So the charter flights all go at night. They send coaches and cellular vehicles and vans to a detention centre where they've kind of gathered a group of people. The people will know that they're meant to be going. And a large number of custody officers will come in and one by one, the men, I've only seen it with men, the men will be brought down from, from their cells into the reception area where they will 
go through a process, they'll be given back their personal belongings. Sorry to interrupt, but just I was just curious to know whether they were handcuffed or not. This is the interesting part. So initially they're not handcuffed, they're just brought down. The detainee officers have handcuffs, but they can't use them in the aeroplane because of, in the airport, because of metal detectors. Okay. So what they use instead is they use um, what's called a waist restraint belt, which is a, a cloth item which they're taught to use how to apply by prison officers from the National Tactical Response Group. So they, they, t- they do a week's worth of training, which, which I've also done. Okay. <laughs> and so basically the, somebody's brought down from their cell, they're brought into the reception area, and, at that, and they're reunited with their possessions. At that point, they're told that they're going to be taken to the airport. And this happens whether it's a charter flight or a normal or a scheduled flight. If at that point the person says, okay, yes, I'm going to go, no problem, no problem, then they are normally kind of escorted with an officer on either side of them to a bus or a van. If they don't want to go, and if they say they don't want to go, even if they don't do anything, if they just verbally indicate that they don't want to go, then they're normally put into a waist restraint belt. And HMIP has shown... That's the inspectorate of prisons. That's the inspectorate of prisons. They have done quite a few observations of charter flights and they have found that people are almost always put into waist restraint belts and that they were not convinced that there were reasons. I have to say, I mean, I've only observed a few different versions, you know, a few different flights, and it does seem to me that there is a heavy usage of waist restraint belts. Okay, and they get them put on and then get taken to the plane and basically put onto the plane in in that waist restraint belt. Yeah, and so the waist restraint belt goes around their waist and then it attaches to their wrists through cables. And so they can have their arms free or they can have their arms pulled right back so that they're sitting around their tummy, if you like. Um, And then then there's an additional bit to the waist restraint belt which can go around their legs so they can be actually forcibly carried up the stairs onto a plane. Have you seen that happen? I have, yes. Yeah. So with a with a charter flight, to some extent, they can do that as much as they feel necessary. Um, and, you know, we may have questions about how necessary it is, but that's, that's how charter flights work. On a scheduled flight, it's a little bit different because there are passengers. And so actually to have somebody wrapped up in a waist restraint belt and physically carried onto a plane in front of holiday makers. Yeah. <laughs> They're quite interesting to watch those flights because actually they have to do, the, the escortations have to spend a lot of time really trying to talk to the person who they're deporting to try and persuade them not to do that. So they, you know, so they have to, they, they have to spend a lot of effort trying to kind of keep them calm and, and, and help them do whatever they need to do in order to, to feel that they can leave. And are the escort agents in uniform? So if I'm heading off on my holiday and, you know, full of the joys of spring, um, and then what, there's two blokes in front of me in a uniform with someone who's looking really agitated. <laughs> I might get a little bit nervous. Yeah, they're in, it's a little bit murky. They're not really in uniform. They are meant to be wearing lanyards, which identify them. They don't always do that, I don't think. And they they wear up until they get onto the plane. They wear um, high-vis jackets because actually you have to do that if you're in the in the airport. Um, but they take those off. So no escort escort agents, as they're called, um, actually are just kind of smartly dressed men. By okay. I mean, and some smartly dressed women, but they're not they're not in uniform. So you wouldn't necessarily know who they were. They would normally already be sitting in the far, in the back row of the plane. Although some airlines ask people to board them last, some airlines ask people to board them first. Um, but they they would not that often be carried on. So so they will walk on 
and then um, and then they normally take off the waist restraint belt once the plane has taken off. Okay, and can that be sort of hidden under their clothes? I'm probably thinking of a waist restraint belt and thinking straight jacket, but it's not. I imagine it's not that big. It's probably quite discreet, is it? It looks like, you know, when you're wearing a backpack and you have the bits that you click around your waist, mm. the sort of to, to, try, to try and make the backpack sort of sit on, sit your, on hips. your hips. Exactly. It, it, looks, it looks like that. It looks like that. So it's not, I mean, you can see what it is, but it's not, it's not a straight jacket. No, it's, it really sits around their, their waist. And I mean, I think passengers do. I mean, we've, we've seen that passengers do sometimes intervene and do sometimes realise what's happening and aren't always supportive of a deportation flight. I mean, other passengers, I think, you know, don't necessarily care or don't want to get involved. There's a lot of variation. And what's quite interesting to watch, actually, and what I had not been so aware of, is that in a scheduled flight, the ultimate choice about whether the person actually gets on the plane is down to the captain of the plane. Okay. And and so the captain can say, look, I don't I don't want to take this person. And I've I've been on one flight where the captain came down and kind of observed and spoke to the spoke to the detainee and really, you know, really, really wanted to be sure that 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 the individual was not in distress and was not going to kind of make a fuss because he didn't want to have his other passengers um, alarmed. So, but I mean, you know, and I, that's, that's, you can't control for that. Some captains, you know, some captains are going to be concerned about those things. Other captains are going to be less concerned. That's just another variation that's built into the system. But when you think about the consequences for the individual, you say you don't want to go the day they try and take you, you're lucky enough to have a captain who doesn't want to take you either. Then, you know, that's a reprieve from deportation. But what if you don't want to go and the captain doesn't care? Well, you know, then you go. So, so that sort of variation, there's that, that's not controlled by the courts. There's no okay. due process. That's just down to, to one person's preference. And whose job is it to make sure the captain is aware that he has someone on his plane? Every deportation has a team leader. Um, and then that team leader goes into the airport, gets all the tickets for the people who are going. Because when there's a deportation, the deportee is accompanied by three, at least three agents. Oh, right. That's quite a lot. Quite a lot. And also often... Uh, accompanied by a medic as well. So so there's, there's, it's quite expensive for the state. Why is that? I mean, because my mind jumped to the wrong place, which was, um, this might be completely sort of ridiculous, but if someone was getting really out of control, is it so they can sort of sedate them? No, it's not. It's not. And I think I think it's important to say, no, it's not, because I, cause I, I believe that the United States does that. Okay. And I know that people in detention fear that that happens to them. Okay. But I, I really don't think that happens. No, the medic is there. The medic is there for their health. They have to establish that the person is fit to fly. If you collect from a detention centre, for instance, they, they take the person's blood pressure, they, they, they ask some questions. They're also handed the, the, the medical notes that, that the person may have and they're handed any medication that the person may need for the flight and any medication that they may be given to have when they arrive. And so, again, there is a slightly tragic sort of side of things where, you know, people quite often, as they are in prison, have very poor health in immigration detention and they are quite often being sent back to countries which don't have very good health systems and which, ha- and which have health systems where you would have to have a certain amount of income to be able to access them. And so they are quite often returned with, you know, three months worth of HIV medication or three months worth of insulin or whatever it is. And that sort of medication is handled by the medic during 
the flight. So they're there to monitor the health of the person while they are deported and to um, issue any medication they may need. And then when they get to the other end, they give them their medication to take on with them. Okay. And then just to complete that sort of bit of the journey, they land in whichever country they are going into. And at what point does the responsibility of the escort agent and the doctors, and I suppose our country, where does that responsibility end? Again, a very uh, murky question. It's not totally clear to me. They are handed over. It's not that the plane lands and then the person just gets off like like a tourist would. They are escorted to a state agent. Who that state agent is varies. In some places, it's the police. In some places, it's the immigration authorities. And I think even in some places, it might be the military. So it's not entirely clear. And the question of legal responsibility is also not entirely clear. Actually, I think there was just last week another example in the paper of somebody uh, who had been deported, I believe, to Nigeria, who the courts found well after his deportation. I think his case may have been a year ago that actually he hadn't been given the appropriate legal remedies in the UK that he was entitled to. And so the British government have to go find him in Nigeria and bring him back so that he can actually go through his asylum process because he he had an asylum claim based on um, sexual orientation. So the question of when Britain's responsibility comes to an end, it's both a legal question, but it's also probably a, a moral question as well. I was just sort of sitting here thinking, God, this all actually sounds really distressing and upsetting. And I sort of imagine myself watching someone being sort of bundled onto a charter flight in restraints and and things. How has that been for you sort of watching all of this? I know you have to keep a certain level of professional decorum, but it's, um, it's not an area that I've given much thought to. And I wonder if the, you know, the people listening might be quite shocked How's it been for you personally? Um, it's uh, it's difficult. I mean, I to be honest, I've been doing this work for so long now that I think it has affected me in all sorts of ways. Just detention work and and now this new project, and and that's also why I think it's important to look at staff because I think it definitely affects staff. Um, Absolutely. When I was observing the training in control and restraint, I. Um, I actually found that very difficult. And there was one day where I I would often volunteer because they, they do they teach it by role play. So somebody has to be the person who is who is controlled and restrained. And uh, and they had odd numbers. So I I volunteered to be that person. And actually there was a day where that happened. And I had to leave afterwards because I almost cried. And it wasn't, it absolutely wasn't the case that anybody did anything to me. You know, everybody, everybody was completely freaked out when I would volunteer because they, they really <laughs> didn't want to hurt the, like, the Oxford professor lady. But, but it was just the kind of, I don't know, it was, the, it was the proximity of it all. It was the sense that this is what we're asking people to do. We're asking people to actually tie other people up and make them do something that they don't want to do. I do understand some of the policy discussions that are had around questions of, of, of you know, the right to remain. I, I you know, I understand that the, the, the complexities of what's happening, but I do think asking people to force other people to do things is actually really a very big ask, and 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 it is a painful one. And I, I noticed that although 
nobody ever said anything during control and restraint training that when when the officers who were who were being trained were put in the position of of bit the detainee and so were being controlled everybody got this weird blank look on their face like everybody kind of just shut down and stopped bantering and then afterwards there'd be this kind of release of some kind of energy where where people would then suddenly get very excitable I think asking this of officers is a lot. And of course, you know, of course, the person who experiences the most grief from being forced to leave is is the detainee, um, you know, because most people don't want to go. And if it's coming down to a forced deportation, it means that they've said they don't want to go. And, you know, they don't want to go for all sorts of reasons, but they are often very familiar ones, like they have children here or they had a job here or they just, you know, wanted to go to university here or you know, they felt safer here. Um, women quite often have more options here than in more traditional societies. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why anybody immigrates and therefore doesn't necessarily want to go back to where they were born. You know, obviously the most pain and grief is is theirs, but I do think that for officers, this is also something which is difficult. And part of my project is trying to get officers to talk to me about their work and and to to articulate how it feels and and it's hard because no one's really ever asked them and and people put up a lot of barriers and people also you know it's a job they need the money they they get some enjoyment out of bits of it i mean i don't think necessarily the forcing although maybe some do but there are other parts to the job that they like. And so that's, you know, that's really what my research is currently on. Okay. And when when does this project come to an end? And how can people, <laughs> how long's a piece of string? Um, and where can people sort of find out more about your work? Because it's so utterly fascinating. Well, my, my project has been significantly derailed by the coronavirus. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, I haven't really been able to do anything since March because, of course, even before the the shutdown, it was starting to be, you know, airplanes, airports were starting to be not necessarily places you wanted to go. Deportations have, um, very few have happened over the lockdown. There have been a few charter flights to get people out who'd agreed to go. If anything, the traffic's been in the other direction, the charter flights bringing British citizens back from, from different countries. I've just recently started to get back in touch with Mighty to see if I can I can restart some of it. So, it's essentially all been delayed um, by as long as as this continues. So I think it's I think it's going to be quite some time before okay. I, I work on it. But it, you know, I will be writing little bits and pieces on the Border Criminologies website as as it sort of starts coming together. Yeah, and we'll put details of all of that in our footnotes in case um, anyone listening is interested in the other sort of work that you're doing. Um, So Mary, thank you so much. It really has been a lot of food for thought in an area, as I say, that I had given little bandwidth and attention to, but thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, Edwina. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.